Scripture lesson this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word which you are bringing to us this day. And we thank you uh, for this day which you have made that we can rejoice and be glad even as we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior and our Lord. And we pray that you would be pleased to meet us by your word this day and direct us by your spirit in the truth, that you would help us to attend to your word, that you would keep us from burdensome cares of our lives and the happy distractions of this time of year, and that your word would come to us powerfully and meaningfully, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. So goes the Christmas song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which you may know or remember from the old kind of stop-motion kids movie starring Fred Astaire or the song that is sung in Elf at a crucial moment in the movie or just from your own Christmas music playlist. And what does Santa have? Well, a list. With the implication being that if you've been good, then you'll receive Christmas presents, and if you've been bad, then you won't. Well, at this time of year, there are all sorts of lists that are in use, whether a wish list for Christmas presents, or a list of the presents you need to get, or uh, even a, a grocery list of the foods and ingredients need for Christmas dinner, etc., now, I'd imagine that many of us have daily to-do lists which we use in order to help us accomplish and remember the tasks that need to get done. The lists aren't necessarily spectacular and are and hardly a high form of literary expression, but they certainly serve a practical purpose. And as you heard just a bit ago, Matthew's gospel begins with a list, with a genealogy an intentionally stylized royal genealogy for Jesus. The specific mention of 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 from David to deportation to Babylon, and then 14 from the deportation uh, to Jesus is hardly accidental, even as Matthew purposely leaves out certain characters. 
Also of interest is, uh, is the fact that the numerical value for the name of David in, David in Hebrew is 14. So you've got these 14s, these doublings of 7, times 3. And all for the sake of a list. You know, I doubt that any of our lists are quite as involved as Matthew's. Still more, David is arguably the main character of the genealogy, with his name being mentioned the most, a total of five times. And although the genealogy isn't the focus of our study this morning, it's good for us to at least have a bit of this context, a bit of understanding that Matthew is setting forth Jesus as the Davidic king, as the Messiah, the Christ, as we turn our attention to Matthew's rendering of the birth account. And maybe you even notice that he doesn't really, Matthew doesn't really give us a, a birth account in a sense, at least not as we might expect. You know, that's probably what the section heading in your Bible says. But you can almost argue that Matthew doesn't explicitly mention the birth of Jesus. You can infer it from the language in verse 25, but it almost seems to be an afterthought. Despite the fact that in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So what's going on here? What is Matthew trying to convey? Why did he choose to include these details for a birth narrative when there are so many others that he could have shared? Furthermore, we aren't given any geographical information about Joseph or Mary until the beginning of chapter 2 when we read that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And what is Bethlehem known as? Well, the city of David. And what does Bethlehem mean? It means house of bread. So basically, chapter 1, from beginning to end, is focused on names, particular people, particular characters in the story, and little else, with special emphasis upon Joseph in this section. Now, we assume certain things, and we know some of these details because we know the story and are familiar with Luke's account of uh, the birth of, of Christ and other texts of Scripture that fill in the details. But based on Matthew's text alone... We're initially presented with three names, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and initially in that order. But then notice how that order is reversed in the unfolding of the story, which forms a subtle chiasm. Uh, this is also true of the mention of Jesus, David, and Abraham in verse 1, and then for the genealogy to move through Abraham to David to Jesus in verse 17. And as Matthew's gospel has layer upon layer... Well, that's the case here in verses 18 to 25, uh, recounting this all-important information. So Matthew begins his gospel as though he's writing a new Genesis, even using the word in verse 1, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, and then the genealogy that follows reminds us of the genealogies that we find throughout Genesis, the, the Toledotes. But Matthew uses that word Genesis again here in verse 18, though it's translated birth. So verse 18 informs us that we have the genesis of Jesus Christ, the origin of Jesus Christ. That, that's what Matthew is writing. And that being the case, we hear further echoes of Genesis, don't we? You know, think about it. In Genesis 1, what is recounted? Well, the creation of the world uh, over the course of the creation week. And what we might say are the big picture of God's creative powers. But then what do we find in Genesis 2? More specifically, the creation of man, as though the, the camera lens zooms in to capture it in more detail. Well, that's what we have here in the second section of the opening chapter of Matthew. 
We have kind of the, the Genesis 2 equivalent as Matthew zooms in on the origin of Jesus. And as Matthew does so, what is one of the primary focuses of attention in the text? Well, the quotation from Isaiah that we find in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, surely that is an important piece of information, and we will speak to it later on. But I want you to think back over the, the just kind of the entirety of the section and consider who is the main character in the story. It's actually not Jesus. It's not Mary. Nor is it the angel of the Lord, as important as all of them are. Now, the main character in this account, verses 18 to 25, is Joseph. Now, consider that this birth narrative is written from his perspective. In Luke, the story is told from Mary's vantage point, but this one from Joseph's. And he's the one who's, who acts, whose character has movement. And so, this story is really about Joseph more than anyone else. Now, why might Matthew include this account? What's its significance to his literary purposes? Well, those are good questions, and let's see if we can build the case in order to answer them. Notice that Mary refers uh, that Matthew refers to Mary in relation to Jesus as his mother, as Jesus' mother, which provides a bridge of sorts back to verse 16, where Mary was mentioned, and may also be an indicator of Matthew assuming his audience would have known about Mary already. Also in verse 18, we find out that Mary was betrothed, was pledged to be married to Joseph, and was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to have an understanding of what betrothal involved in those days. First of all, it was more than what we would consider to be an engagement today. Uh, likely, Joseph had paid part of the bride price to Mary's father at this point, and the only thing left for them to do was to get married and live in the same house. And the betrothal period typically lasted one year. Second, we have to understand that if a marriage pledge was broken, then it actually um, constituted divorce. In fact, if a woman's husband-to-be died before they were married, she was considered a widow. So again, Joseph and Mary's relationship was much more involved than an engaged couple today that can break off um, the engagement whenever they choose. Also, it was common for a woman to be betrothed anywhere from 12 to 14 years old, 16 at the oldest, and so Mary was probably in that age range. For the men, it was 18 to 20 years of age, and so it seems reasonable enough to conclude that Joseph was about that old as well. And this information being in mind, then, it helps us to understand the gravity of the situation facing Joseph and why he speaks of him resolving to divorce her, even though they're not fully married yet. But notice something else about verse 18. We're given the reader's edge at the end of the verse, aren't we? We know something that Joseph doesn't even know yet. We know that the baby Mary is carrying is from the Holy Spirit. See, Joseph isn't privy to that information. And because he's a righteous man, because he's a man who observes God's law, he speaks to put Mary away quietly. There were basically two options available to Joseph. He could put Mary on trial and make a public spectacle of her, or he could get a document drawn up and employ two witnesses to procure the divorce. And this is the route that he's seeming to about to choose. And notice how his actions further show his godly character. He's exercising a measure of compassion. He's showing mercy in the midst of judgment. He's unwilling to put her to shame. 
Contrast that with the later actions of Jewish leaders. And we observe here in Joseph a man who understood what the Lord required to do justice and to love kindness. See, those aren't set at odds with one another when the Lord proclaims it through the prophet Micah. And so we observe righteous Joseph acting in this fashion. Then in verse 20, we're told that Joseph was in the process of of making this decision, that he was considering these things, that he was mulling them over and thinking through what he must do. And then what happens? Well, he has a dream, doesn't he? Not to unlike unlike Joseph the patriarch in Genesis, who also had dreams and whose father's name was also Jacob. Still more in the next chapter, where do Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go to avoid Herod's death decree? They go to Egypt. So you've got another Joseph who has dreams in Egypt and he takes with him Jesus who is the bread of life, the bread that feeds the world, not so unlike Joseph the patriarch who dreams, whose dreams led him to Egypt and then led him to um, be able to feed the world uh, from Egypt during the time of the famine. See, Matthew wants us to make all these connections. He wants us to see how Jesus' story is the story of Israel and the fulfillment of it. And so this Joseph has a dream, and an angel of the Lord appears to him and reveals to him what we already know, and even what Mary knows as well, having been visited by Gabriel. And notice how the angel addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. So we're reminded again of his family line and the emphasis upon the Davidic line that underlies the entire genealogy in the first part of the chapter. So Matthew subtly continues to establish his case for Jesus' royal genealogy and how he can also be considered a son of David. And this divine appearing is very much like the theophanies, the appearances that God makes to the Old Covenant saints, particularly with the admonition, do not fear. Or in, this, or in the case of Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling her not to be afraid. But in this instance, Joseph, we're not told that he's afraid of the angel himself, but he isn't to be afraid to take Mary to be his wife. And then at last, Joseph is made privy to what Mary knows and what we the readers know. The child conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Now, once again, we do well to step back and think through what the presence of the Holy Spirit indicates to us. You can certainly guess by now that there are obvious echoes to the creation account, that the presence of the Spirit here is indicative of new creation, and that's certainly the case. We also know from Genesis, and especially Genesis 2, that the Spirit is the source of human life. As God breathed the breath of life into Adam, so the Spirit has a part in the forming of the new Adam. Further in Israel's history and the prophets, we observe that Davidic Messiah and the suffering servant in Isaiah are connected to the Holy Spirit, that he would particularly work through this person. Isaiah 61, the spirit of Yahweh God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. It's a part of the section of Isaiah describing what the Messiah would bring about, the Messianic age that would come in him, and clearly the Spirit is present. This is also indicated at Jesus' baptism and the presence and action of the Holy Spirit in our present text has all of this backstory and context with it. Again, Matthew's text has layers. So we're always being challenged to peel back what's there on the surface and explore what's lying underneath. And also we do well to stop and consider the obvious implication of the Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus and Mary's womb 
that salvation doesn't come through human potentiality. You know, the regular means of procreation is not the answer for man's condition. It takes God's creative power through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is most certainly the singular seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. But he does not come by way of natural means, but by supernatural means. So we could even argue that Matthew not only has echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, but also chapter 3 in the opening chapter of his gospel. And as an interesting aside, if if Matthew 1 corresponds to Genesis, what happens in chapter 2? Well, we'll read about it uh, later this week. The slaughter of the boys where Herod is like a new pharaoh reminding, uh, reminding us of Exodus. And then in chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism, a ceremonial washing where he's set apart for his ministry, which corresponds to Leviticus. And then in chapter 4, it's his testing in the wilderness reminiscent of Numbers. And then in chapters 5 through 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is expounding upon the law, is giving a second law, which corresponds to Deuteronomy. And then what's the first thing that Jesus does after he comes down the mountain? He cleanses a leper and then later casts out demons. What's he doing? He's healing the land. He's conquering the land. He's a new Joshua. So you have all of this kind of underlying what Matthew is saying here, the progress of these early chapters of his gospel. Well, back to our text and Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit. And here is the answer to the question that Jesus will pose to the Pharisees later in this same gospel saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it that, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, is not simply in the bloodline of David. In fact, he's not at all. Clearly, his father is not Joseph. Joseph does not beget Jesus. And you will recall that interruption in the rhythm of the text from the genealogy. So you might ask, well, how can Jesus be considered of the line of David then? I'll speak to that momentarily, but Jesus' origin is certainly miraculous. So the angel gives Joseph this information, also tells him that Mary will bear a son, and Joseph will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know that Jesus means Yahweh saves, uh, that Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua. And this brings us to another interesting parallel. You know, what what Moses began, Joshua completed. Uh, We could maybe even argue what the law laid the, the foundation for, Jesus, the new Joshua, will accomplish. And the angel's message is clear that the people don't need rescue from Roman political oppression, but deliverance from their sins. Again, another echo back to Genesis 3. And while on one level we rightly think of Israel as the people being referred to here, it's also clear, as Matthew's story unfolds, that Jesus' people includes the Gentiles. You know, there were hints of this even in the genealogy, significantly in two, if not three, of the women who are named. Rahab, she was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba is referred to as the wife of Uriah. And what was he? He was a Hittite. He was a converted Gentile. So there's more to this deliverance than the physical state of the nation. In fact, that's not the goal at all. Rather, there's a spiritual, moral, religious character to this deliverance. And Matthew is making that clear in relaying the angel's message to Joseph. 
Well, then we appear to have Matthew's commentary in verses 22 and 23. And there he quotes that uh, famous text from the prophet saying that the virgin conceiving uh, and bearing a son is fulfilled in what happened with Mary. And that the son's name would be called Emmanuel, which means with us is God. And this follows the actual word order more closely and hopefully even gives a better sense of what's being said. While it certainly has incarnational implications, it's also telling us that God, particularly His Spirit, is present with men in Jesus Christ. Again, this goes back into Israel's history. Balaam testifies in Numbers 23, Yahweh their God is with them, and the shadow of a king is among them. Or as Moses testifies in Deuteronomy 2, For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And how was he most notably be present? Well, in the cloud and and pillar of fire. His spirit, glory, presence in relation to the tabernacle. John's gospel will later flesh this out even more, declaring that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But there's still a foundation for thinking along these lines in what Matthew is conveying. God has been with His people in the past, but in the present and in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, He is with them in this baby born of the virgin, a baby with heavenly origins. And really, when you stop and think about it, these two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, basically describe what Jesus will do in His earthly ministry and how He saves His people from their sin. Even as Psalm 130 declares, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. But these names also describe the continuing mission of the church. We hear it at the end of the service every week as the Emmanuel theme appears at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus promises to be with his disciples until the end of the age. Perhaps you even notice that Matthew doesn't mention Isaiah's name here when quoting the text. He'll use the name of prophets in other places, but not here. It's almost as if the only names we are to be concerned with are are Jesus, Emmanuel, Mary, and Joseph. The the angel of the Lord is anonymous too. Almost as if Matthew is saying, don't get distracted by extraneous details. The angel's message to Joseph is central and the fulfillment of the prophet's words are key. Well, then in verse 24, Matthew doesn't waste any time in telling us that when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So his obedience was immediate and unwavering. There's there's no hesitation in his doing what he'd been instructed to do according to the word from heaven. It's further testimony to the fact that Jesus, uh, that Joseph is a righteous man. And again, I can't help but think of that we're to hear some of these distant echoes from Genesis once again. You know, doesn't Joseph remind you of Noah, who obeyed the Lord, what the Lord told him to do, even though it, it seemed absurd, or may have seemed absurd? Doesn't Joseph remind you of Abraham, who obeyed the Lord's command to leave his fatherland, or to, and to go to another country, or to even sacrifice his only son? With those men of exemplary faith, we don't perceive any hesitation in their obedience, And that's the sense we are given here of Joseph as well. You know, again, it's good for us to stop and think about this and try to 
get some of the, I guess, the realistic context, if you will. Mary's pregnancy before they were married would still appear to be suspicious, even scandalous. You know, imagine the incredulity of some that the baby she carried was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet, that would now be Joseph's testimony too. And the fact that he goes ahead and takes Mary to be his wife validates not only her story, but his as well. He's a righteous man. That's his reputation. And he wouldn't suddenly act out of character and do something preposterous. Now, his actions add validity to their story. And Matthew may even be inserting this into the beginning of his gospel so that it can act as an apologetic against some of the rumors and stories that had arisen regarding Jesus' birth. Well, Matthew's here to dispel them. And not only does he set forth Joseph's witness through his actions, but also the testimony of the prophet. So he's making it that much harder for a Jew to readily discredit his claims. And arguably, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians. And Joseph's faith and patience is further displayed in the fact that he didn't know Mary until after Jesus was born. He goes ahead and takes her for his wife, but waits to consummate the marriage. And while we can point to other texts as well, here we have um, pretty clear biblical evidence against the foolish teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The clear implications that Joseph did know her after she'd given birth to Jesus. So again, Joseph's righteous character shines through. And again, we, we, we need to connect this story back to the previous section. How does this son of David compare with David the king? Could it be that we're to kind of compare and contrast the two? Think about this. David finds out Bathsheba is expecting and goes to great lengths to cover over his sin, finally resulting in Uriah's murder. Joseph, we're told, being a righteous man like Uriah, finds out Mary is expecting and seeks to put her away quietly not wanting to make a public example of her. David's efforts to hush things up are from sinful motives. Joseph's desire to do so, to do things quietly, from righteous ones. And perhaps we can even imagine for a moment Mary's pleading with Joseph, telling him that that she was to be the mother of the Messiah, that an angel had visited her and told her this, and that it wasn't a man that had made her pregnant, but the Spirit of God. Imagine how he must have wanted to believe her, but simply couldn't bring himself to admit that her story was true. It's just too preposterous. And so likely ready to act upon his determination to put her away quietly, the angel of the Lord comes to him in this dream. And how Mary must have prayed to the Lord for help and light, especially for Joseph. And the Lord answered her prayer. He'd been silent for four centuries, but now he's speaking again. And Joseph believes the word that is spoken to him and acts accordingly. Not only in the taking of Mary as his wife, but also in the last act recorded by Matthew in the opening chapter. And he called his name Jesus. See, Joseph's willingness to name Jesus was in essence to adopt him into the line of David. He's willing to call him his own. The acknowledgement of a child by the father officially makes the child his son. And what an interesting twist to this there will be in chapter 3 of Jesus' baptism. But how artfully Matthew presents the story to us. You know, what's the last word 
even in your English translations. Jesus. So it's the first name mentioned in the section, even in this chapter, and it's also the last. Jesus, Emmanuel, with us is God. With us is Yahweh saves. The God who will save his people from their sins. And what a picture is set before us of a God who is not distant, but is present and active, and who sometimes acts in surprising ways. Because for all of the ways that this story is familiar to other stories in Israel's history, and for all the connections that Matthew wants us to make, especially to barren wombs and such, for all the continuity, there's unmistakable discontinuity. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? God has been about new beginnings in the past, but this one is a new beginning in a way of unheard of before. This is a miraculous new beginning that can only be embraced by faith. And as ordinary as this thought is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, even as we confess each week in the Nicene Creed, as it has become somewhat common to us, nevertheless, it's a profound statement of faith. And it's a truth which only faith can grasp and hold. You know, like Joseph, we're called to believe the word from heaven that testifies that Jesus was born from above, from the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We're called to believe the prophet's ancient testimony. And what does that word declare? Salvation from sin in this Jesus, in this baby born to Mary and Joseph which is also a declaration of victory, a declaration of deliverance. Well, likewise, we're called to consider the obedience of righteous Joseph, son of David, that his actions verify this truth, while also providing us an example for our own obedience that we take God at his word and act accordingly. And that doesn't relegate this text into some type of mere moralism, nor is this uh, a be-like-Joseph sermon, strictly speaking. But Joseph was governed by God's word before the angel of the Lord met him, as well as after, acting upon the message he received. In order to have a reputation as being righteous, you have to be governed by God's word, which defines righteousness, and then act accordingly. And that also entails properly dealing with sin. You know, Joseph wasn't sinless, but that didn't mean he couldn't be righteous which is to reflect his family heritage once again in David, whose life embodies much of the same. And not only was this true for Joseph and David, but for Abraham and so many others that we find in Matthew's list in Genesis 1, in chapter 1 of, of uh, Matthew's list of names in chapter 1. But how is it that we can pursue such a life? How is it that we pursue being those who have a reputation as being righteous. Well, we have to go back to what was said before on account of what God has done in Christ Jesus and the salvation that is ours in Him by faith, by His grace that is a gift and not a result of our works. And that gift is displayed to us again and again, not just at Christmas, but at the Lord's table every single week, where we come and partake of the bread of life, the bread of life who was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. This Jesus who saved us and who continues to manifest himself to us as Emmanuel, God with us in the bread and the wine. 
So let us come and eat and drink, partaking of these signs, which declare the gospel story of victory, of new beginnings, of new life, of our God who is with us, even the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, in the midst of the wonder that you would cause your son to be born of a woman, that you would stoop to our condition in this way, so that you might save us from our sins. Help us all the more to embrace this glorious truth by faith, to pursue all the more lives of righteous obedience to your word, and to celebrate with ever greater joy the salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.